This is Anyone Can Do a Welcome. I'd like to start off with an acknowledgement of country. Bayaju Budri, Darugu, Giyura, Giyura, Nurabarang. Bayaju Budri, Darugu, Warangad, Giyuragu, Barani, Yagu, Baribugu. Bayaju Budri, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, Giyuragu, Nura, Bimugu. I speak well of the Daruk people, the people belonging to country. I speak well of the old ones, past, present, and the future people. I speak well of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their homelands. Welcome back for episode two of Anyone Can Do a Welcome. Naya Giara Anissa, Puruburongo Darugjin, Naya Marangora Barang, Daruk Nurwa. I'm Anissa, a Buruburongo woman from the Richmond area on Daruk country. So last episode I talked about the invasion process according to Richard Broom's Aboriginal Australia book and the impact of the New South Wales Aboriginal Lands Act 1983 had on Daruk Yura Nura. I only touched on that. There's more to come. This week I'm going to start with the creation of the Parramatta and Blacktown Native Institutes, look what's happening on Daruk Nura today, and discuss the second invasion of Daruk Nura. Parramatta and Blacktown Native Institutes existed from 1814 to 1829 and were part of a plan to enlighten the savages. This was led by Governor Macquarie, yes, the same Governor Macquarie, who eloquently called for the heads of the natives who were rebelling against invasion. Like you wouldn't defend your your home. Now, we had smallpox running throughout as well because that was also a great thing the British brought with them, which killed many Darugiura, particularly those who first met the invaders at Port Jackson. The invaders made their way west towards Durabang, Hawkesbury and Nepean River, and in 1801, Governor King allowed for mob to be fired upon in order to drive them away from the British settlements. More and more mob were kicked off their traditional lands, and when a drought hit in 1814, the conflict got worse. So to stop it, Governor Macquarie sent out three raiding parties at Cow Pastures, Aids, and Appen with a list of names of who to go after. They had instructions to force mob off country towards the mountains, but not to hurt the women and children. So men were fair game. These children would then be procured, stolen, for the Parramatta Native Institute. So that was the first stolen generation. There was also the offer of land to mob. You know, if, you, if you're going to do right ways, we'll let you have a piece of your land back. And Colby, Buru Barongal Colby, and Nuruginji from Wainamata Creek took it up. Now, Colby is the same Colby who is Maria Locke's brother, not the Colby from the coastal mob. December 1814, the Parramatta Native Institute is open for business and the business is to save the savages. It was run by a missionary called William Shelley who'd come from London with Governor Macquarie and his wife, the patrons of the school. You know, you've got to have them good upstanding white fellas there doing everything right. 
Basically, it said that the Native Institution aimed to affect the civilization of the Aborigines of New South Wales and to render their habits more domesticated and industrious. By whose standards? Because it wasn't like us blackfellas were sitting around doing nothing. To get mob to come along and have this big, big yarn, you know, massive recruitment that happened. You know, you see it nowadays in all educational places. They open it all up and they say, come in, bring your children. Well, same, same back then. And a huge feast was head on, held on December 28th in 1814. From that meeting, four students enrolled with another eight to arrive later. The big recruitment drive, the big, big recruitment drive happened in 1816 with the offer of blankets, clothes and shoes to those who willingly gave their children to the institution. Macquarie even splurged for, for breastplates for the chiefs that said meritorious natives written on them. I mean, like, seriously, what an item to be given out to community when you're taking their children. Little breastplates. Numbers continue to increase at this time. Parents were lucky enough to get a viewing spot with a special open slat fence erected to gaze on their children from afar. I mean, come on, who wouldn't want to do that? Yaramundi, my ancestor, spoke of the fear of men in black clothes taking the children to institution in 1818, and he wasn't wrong. If you've ever watched Rabbit Proof Fence, you see that scene. That's heartbreaking. This happened in 1818. We still see this sort of behaviour today. Gunjis turn up. Docs turn up. Our kids go. Same pattern different century. In 1821, several Dudog children died and as a consequence, many who were in the institution fled. Despite low enrolments though, Macquarie's like cheering from the rafters. He was able to showcase just how good his institute was with the marriages of two Dudog girls to two respectable, aka white acting, Dudog men. Not to mention Maria Locke's achievements that scored her well above the combined cohort of British and Dudog children at the institution. By December 1821, the final recruitment drive by Macquarie yielded its highest number of attendees. So, you know, he was on the way out and he had to make sure he, he beat the last year's uh, big recruitment drive. He was replaced, though, by Governor Brisbane. However, we'll go back one year. In 1820... Blacktown Native Institute was opened with William Walker in charge of the Wesleyan Mission. So this is the Reverend Walker for whom some mob may end up with the surname Walker because he changed all their names to Walker. His role was to be responsible for the black natives of New South Wales. He did clash with Reverend Marsden, an Anglican chaplain and friend of Macquarie, and Marsden believed that the church should have a larger role in the lives of blackfellas. The fight between the two men of God eventually led to the institute being cut in half, with some children going to Walker and others going to the Anglican Church because Marsden himself had been removed from the board by the governor a year earlier for being a bit of a dodgy bugger. In 1825, Walker is charged with amalgamating the female and male orphan institutes because, you know, one institute is not enough. You've got to have lots more, eh? A new governor comes to town, so it's like a revolving door. Darling is his name. He believes that Aboriginal people should become the objects of civilization and conversion to Christianity. I must say that again, objects 
of civilization and conversion to Christianity. We already had a civilization. We already had our own spiritual connection to Nura. This is being thrown down our throats. Different story. The Blacktown Native Institute is resurrected under new management with a mix of Aboriginal and, quite interestingly, Maori children. I was like, where did they come from? But they got them. They brought them. Maori were here in 1825. Drought affected the land at the same time and coupled with poor management, the Institute enacted strict conditions to protect the food from the students themselves and the greater community. So they built walls everywhere and they locked the food down. Now, if you've ever seen Brand New Day, there's a scene where the young, young fella goes and steals the food that's locked up by the priest. Same, same. Same, same. At this time, there were several deaths of children. But this was due to venereal diseases at the Institute. I'm just going to let that sink in. For those of you who are triggered by this, my apologies, but this is our history, folks, white and black. This is our history that needs to be spoken about so that it doesn't happen again or it's not brushed under the rug because, you know, got to wave them flags. By 1829, the Institute itself was abandoned. Maria Locke, as in Maria Buruburongo, petitioned to have the land at Blackstown and was successful because her brother Colby had had a plot allocated to him right next to the Institute. And it stayed in, in the family until the early 1900s. It had been taken off her at one point by Macquarie. She petitioned to get it back and she got it back and it stayed until the 1900s. It has since been returned to Darugyura. On the 13th of October in 2018, after many, many, many attempts to get it back, the site has been returned to Darug custodians, many of whom are descendants of some of those survivors of those taken children. It's now been looked after by the Darug Strategic Management Group. And you can access Google their name and have a look and there's a whole pile of stuff about them on their website. Darug Nura today. So coming up soon is a family reunion to be held at Murumiriga on March the 2nd to the 3rd, so the Saturday, Sunday. Shout out to Annie Cheryl, Annie Rose, Robertson, Wayne and the staff at Muru Mitigar for getting this reunion going. And I look forward to interviewing several Mujin on the day about the reunion and their connections to Nura. It's going to be a great day. If you can go, that'll be fabulous. You will find me there, biggest mouth, I think, for Darug Mob. Though that might be contended over the, uh, the weekend. We'll see how we go. But don't be ashamed. Come and say hi. Or as we like to say, what are me? For those of you who don't know about Muru Mitigar, it's a Dudug owned and run social enterprise in Western Sydney. So this is all, you know, 100% mob. They provide skills, training and work opportunities and financial counselling as well as assistance with your bills and no interest loans to the local community. And you can go to their website, which is www.murumitigar.com.au really important uh, community organisation. More importantly, they're actually Supplied Nation registered, which means they are Aboriginal owned and registered. If you are unsure 
go to Supply Nation and do a search for Aboriginal organisations. And if they aren't on there, then you've got to be a bit more mindful. I'm always about supporting black business and black organisations. Muru is also a registered charity and deductible gift recipient. They accept donations and tax deductible gifts and bequests to help them with their work and their services to the greater Aboriginal community in the Sydney Basin. Look them up, check them out. If you're listening, go do some training with them. Go and say hello. Go, what I mean, Auntie Cheryl or Auntie Ros. Even Uncle Colin Locke turns up there too with them. So go and say hello to the mob. Check them out and I'll see you at the reunion. So last episode I briefly talked about the introduction of the New South Wales Aboriginal Lands Act of 1983. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into it and what it means and the impact it's had on Daruk. First we have to define what the Act actually is and then what a lot can do. So according to the Aboriginal Affairs website, the Lands Councils constituted under the Lands Right Act in New South Wales can claim land as compensation for historic dispossession of land and to support Aboriginal community social and economic development. So what does that actually mean? Well, basically, the Land Rights Act can claim Crown land that isn't being used for mob. Great in, in thought. They can't claim places like Parliament House in New South Wales or residential land or anything like that, but they can put in claims for land. The only downside is that under the legislation, in order to be a lands council, you do not have to have 51% traditional owners as board members or controlling like you would a uh, Aboriginal business, you would expect 51% minimum to be owned by Aboriginal people. So in a um, lands council, whilst everyone is Aboriginal, very rarely, well, actually, there aren't any at the moment, in the current Sydney Lauks that are Darug. And one would think that if it was Darug Nura, that there would be some Darug representation. But we'll get to that in a minute. So the purpose of the Lands Act is set out in Section 3 that says it's to provide land rights for Aboriginal persons in New South Wales. Okay, that's a good thing. To provide for representation in land councils in New South Wales. Well, depending on which land council you want to be in. Uh, to vest land in those councils, so to give land to those councils to manage and look after and possibly sell later on for money to go back into community. Sounds good, unless you're in Sydney. To provide for the acquisition of land and management of land and other assets and investments by or for those councils and the allocation of funds to and by those councils. So what I just said before, but that includes money. Funds is also money. Funds is also land, resources, anything like that. To provide for the provision of community benefit schemes by or on behalf of these councils, which is great. You, you by reading this act and what it looks like right now, you would think that that's a fantastic thing. But when you cast the lens over it, that is currently the Sydney Basin and the lack of Daru representation in those lands councils, one makes you think, who are they really looking after? 
uh, the point is to look after Aboriginal people in New South Wales, 100%. No, no argument there. But when you use the, the land, which is traditionally not your home country, and you sell it or you allow it to be mined, Durabang is being sand mined at the moment. We'll follow that up next episode. Or you want to sell it for housing, Lizard Rock, next episode. Anything like that, that greatly impacts the traditional owners of the country, Daruk, more than any other community group that sits there. So that's the downside of the Act. By not making it mandatory that 51% of, of board members be Daruk, or Wiradjuri if you live on Wiradjuri country, or Dakanyong if you live there, Awabikul, um, Barkanji, you name it. If if the land council sits on traditional lands of those people, 51% of that board should be from that nation. Flat out, plain and simple. So the principle of, of Arara or the Lands Act, which I will just call it from now on, is self-determination, which is great if you have the option to be a part of the Lands Council, which I'll get to in a little minute. So since the introduction of the Lands Council, many of the powers within its provisions and the right to make decisions has been gifted over basically to the Lands Councils themselves. So all this big gaba designated power has been given to the Lands Councils over the people of Sydney, including the traditional owners who have cultural authority, historical authority, linguistical authority, geographical authority over their own country. But under the Act, you don't have to be a traditional owner, which I think is a joke. Personal opinion. According to Metro's website, we all know who Metro is, each local Aboriginal Lands Council is to improve, protect and foster the best interests of all Aboriginal persons within the council's areas and other persons who are members of the council. Well, cool. Sounds like a good thing. But again, let's put that Darug lens on it. How many members? Zero. So is it really the best interests of the Aboriginal persons within their area? Because there are Darug people who live in that land council boundary and the other five that sit, sorry, the other four that sit in the Sydney Basin. The Lands Right Act in 1983 states, Division 6, Community Land and Business Plans. So a local Aboriginal Lands Council preparing a community land and business plan must consult with the following persons. So you've got A is members of the Land Council. B, and this is the one we need to look at, persons who have cultural association with the land within the council's area. Darug have the cultural association to the land but we're not included. And C, any other persons required to be consulted by the regulations or a policy of the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. So we're already being shut out by policies, procedures and attitudes. So where is that actual consultation with Dado Yura? Where is it? Even as a come and have a cuppa, come for a yarn, 
we want to talk to you about this. Oh, look, we have someone doing a site assessment and we know this is your traditional land. Do you want to come and have a look with us and walk with us and look if we found some artifacts, you know, blah, nothing, nothing, which is really disappointing because there was some repatriation of remains um, and objects last year and I think the last five years and those remains were buried on Nora, but where? Where were they buried? Whose clan were they from? Because there are 29 clans at the Dadog Nation. Were they buried on the right clan country? Just because um, a lands council is confined by their own little Gabar borders does not mean that the repatriation of remains came from that same space because, you know, that wasn't a priority when they were taken in the first place. So we've got to think about this. This is, we're talking ancestors' bodies that are being brought back to, to Nora and they should be given the funeral, if you want to put it in that term, return to country the way they should be. Many, many Darugyura have applied to be members of various land councils that lay claim to our Nura. You only have to watch the Inside episode, I think it was in the 90s, um, Aboriginal or Not is the title, to see Metro in particular's attitude to Anifei, a Darugjin whose mother grew up around Redfern and was known to the community. And the conduct of these people in the meeting coming directly from Art's mouth is, is distressing. So if you want to watch it, it's about 14 minutes into the video. You can find it on YouTube. Um, then you see the former CEO's response. Now this would have been, I, I think, about the late 90s. And so the hair, the clothes, have a look. Um, and their response when they were questioned about this was, oh, we're, we're here to make sure that the money goes, the grants and everything go to Aboriginal people. If you're a traditional owner on country and you can prove it, which so many of us can, who are the lands councils to tell us that we are not there, that we don't exist, that we are a myth? By definition, they're actually not following the Act. But they don't say that. It's, it's distressing, so I'm just telling you now, if uh, if you watch it, just take your time. There's a new one that came out um, late last year with um, Sister Michaela from Indigital and um, current CEO or board member or whoever it is uh, was also on there and given quite considerable amount of, of floor time compared to a traditional owner sitting there in the audience, Darug, on Darug Nura being asked about Aboriginal identity and that person got more speaking from a visitor's perspective on Darugnura. Okay, then there's stories of mobs sending in their applications via the post, back in the old days, folks, or via email when technology got a little bit better. Uh, their applications were lost in the mail or misplaced, so mob applied again, only to be told the same thing. The only mistake that they did was put down that they were Darug. They could have put Wiradjuri, they could have put Ewan, they could have put Barkindji, they could have put any other nation and they wouldn't. it wouldn't have been lost. But every time they put Darug on there, the paperwork went missing. Complaints were made to the governing body, the Office of the Registrar of the Land Rights Act, and uh, to date I don't believe anyone's been held accountable. Now in this day and age of emails and, and read receipts and, you know, 
where you receive an email and you get that little receipt too, you know, all that sort of stuff. You'd think that would be enough to deter people. Apparently not. Nowadays, it's near the Eora myth. So all these other steps have happened. Doors wrote Eora for people. Doors. Okay. He got that directly from Bachigarang. He got it directly from a Daruk Jin. He wrote it down. That's where it came from. In 67, 1967, I have to remember it's now, you know, 2024. And uh, I'm a child of the 70s, so I've got to remember, got to put that 19 in front. In 1967, Fred McCarthy, who was the director of the Australian Museum that sits in, in the city, coined the term for coastal Daruk, and it's stuck, thanks to Tyndale's updated map. His 1940s original map had Daruk. Aetis map from the 90s, if you look, not Aetis, ATSIC. The ATSIC um, education pack that was sent out to schools in the mid-90s actually had a map that said Darug. No mention of Yorta, period. This was done by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC. For those of you who are too young to know what ATSIC was, they were our voice back in the 70s, 80s and early 90s and then they were destroyed by the government because they got too good at their jobs but also because they kept putting all these gubs in and, you know, things got a bit rank. But the initial ATSIC from the 70s and 80s was amazing and into the start of the 90s and we had people like Uncle Charlie Perkins working in ATSIC, you know. One of my cousins, Sonia Stewart, uh, was working there. She ended up becoming the top lawyer um, in New South Wales and um, was a chairman, chairperson, I should say, of the Go Foundation or still is. I have to look that up. So there were some good people that come from there, good people, and they would send those education packs out to schools. So if you have one of those packs, you know, hook me up, send it to me if you got my email or share it on the, the Dudorg resources page on Facebook because we would love to see that. So... What followed after Tyndale's map was rejigged were lots of white people carve and Nura up for themselves. The boundaries are clear for Daruk, always. The waterways are our boundaries. They break up the, the 29 clans. They break up the borders between all the other nations. This is fact, has always been fact. We've got Botany Bay. We go along the Georges River to the west up the Nepean and Hawkesbury Rivers and east to Broken Bay. Some have suggested as far as Port Hacking, and I actually tend to think that because the clans around Port Hacking, the Narogogul and the Gwigal, use Gal at the end of their clan names. Now, the clans of the Dutterwall, which are further south, Wadi Wadi and Bong Bong, do not. So it makes you wonder... Is that right? And then you look at some of the language overlay maps that started in 1790 and you've got Marut talking about um, the, the Gabrigal clan out at Liverpool. So shout out to Gabrigal rep, rep in here. Um, he talks about it and you look at all those overlaid maps. Now, Darug Custodians Aboriginal Corporation actually has a hand-drawn map and you can see where the lines of all of the informants and it includes south of Botany Bay to Port Hacking. Documented language. 
Currently, there is an option to apply to be a register on the register of Aboriginal owners, and you don't have to deal with the Lauks to do that. Kamei Bay National, Kamei Botany Bay National Park is running something like that. So you just have to prove your genealogy and your connection to the country that you that you're claiming you're from. Simple for some. For those who were stolen, it can be a lot harder. So you know, I feel I feel for you mob who was stolen, Jen. What you need to do though, if you can do all of those little steps, because you know them fellas always want that piece of paper, write to the office of the registrar for the Land Rights Act and request that as a Duddle owner registrar needs to be created. Or sorry, request that a Duddle owner's register be created and that you be added to the list. Now under the Act, the registrar is obligated to do so, provided it is in writing. It's a small step, but it's still a step. I'd like to say Māori Didurigora for joining me again, um, highlighting the truth and history of Darugnura. So next time we will dig deeper into the history of Darugnura and the work of our Darugdalang informants. We'll look at Lizard Rock and Durabang sand mining and the latest non-Darug welcomes on Darugnura. Nabawunya. See you soon. Yanu. Bye. Anyone Can Do a Welcome was written and presented by Anissa Jones. This podcast is an opinion on the history and current interactions on Darug Nora. Digiri Gura, Naragu.